the backdrop here is we we think that there's structural inefficiencies that we're looking to extract and you're hiring us to utilize our discretion to improve upon something that uh, you'd expect from the delivery of harvesting those structural inefficiencies. And with that, I'm not trying to say there's any sort of market timing associated with this, but we do think right now is an interesting point in time to just have a little bit of that long gamma positioning within a portfolio in general. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Jason Buck, to host a sequence of in-depth conversations on the topic of volatility. In today's world, the concept of volatility has moved to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolios. With ever-increasing uncertainty around the globe, knowing if you are essentially long or short volatility in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin or survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized investors and the processes they follow to harness their returns, in order to make all of us better informed investors. And with that, please welcome Jason Buck. Thank you, Niels, for the introduction. My special guest today is Zed Francis from Convexitas. Zed has a long history in the solutions business, which is a fancy way of saying tail risk hedging and overlays using option strategies. Today, we're going to talk about options overlays, the Greeks, and cross-asset flows in different asset classes and what volatility tells us about those different asset classes. Zed, I'm going to start off with the easiest but likely the most difficult question. In your personal opinion, why should somebody add volatility or tail risk to their portfolio? Thanks for having me, Jason. I'm excited for our fun conversation here. In the shortest way of explaining why somebody should consider something like this within their portfolio is effectively other diversification methods in this environment are not overly attractive. And the most simple one is obviously fixed income, a classic 60-40 portfolio, 40%, some sort of allocation fixed income, mix of treasuries and credit. Ultimately, the future returns of those allocations looks low to actually maybe negative. So that's a fairly unattractive allocation from a return perspective. But ultimately, is it actually going to provide any diversification to that portfolio if an event happens? In, in March 2020, if you had an allocation of credit, it, it did not. Credit was lower across many different credit qualities during that event that in theory, you wanted to have that as a ballast to your portfolio during that time period. So volatility is a useful tool that you can actually implement truly negatively correlated allocations and potentially even uh, a better means of allocating, as Jason mentioned, mentioned via an overlay uh, that we'll discuss. But that's the main reason, in my view, why folks should be considering volatility as a component of their overall portfolio construction process. There's a couple things you you talked about there that I want to touch on. One is I think a lot of people miss when they're constructing portfolios, they look for a lot of uncorrelated assets. But you just said something very specific, a structurally negatively correlated asset. And people don't realize the value of that with put options. Everybody's looking for diversification. They're looking for uncorrelated, which means it, you know, those your assets can work in concert both in both directions. But when you have a structurally negatively correlated asset to your equity beta, for example, that's a very powerful tool. The second thing you said, and I'm curious your take on this if you feel the same way 
is a lot of times, you know, bonds have been this amazing, like diversifier, like you said, for the last 40 years. But, you know, stock and bond correlations can change over time. But more importantly, you had this positive carry hedge with the bond. And now that we're getting towards the zero bound, do you think you lose that kind of positive carry hedge and maybe you have a flat to negative carry and you don't quite have the convexity or asymmetry you get from that hedge that you once had? I mean, if an asset class is truly uncorrelated, you know, that, that should probably be your entire portfolio. You know, hey, this thing has zero volatility or correlation to risk assets and has a positive return. That, that sounds amazing. Uh, I think the reality is that uncorrelated portfolio works until it doesn't, and it tends to not work at the wrong time for portfolio construction. So that's why we're focused on something that's truly negatively correlated. We're not sugarcoating this out of the gate. The market starts rallying aggressively. Our allocation is going to produce negative P&L. There's no ifs, ands, buts about it. This is negatively correlated. And as you say on the other side, um, fixed income was this fantastic for 40 years that in theory it was providing this ballast to your portfolio, but yet it had positive returns while your equities were having positive returns. Uh, it, it was this euphoria of perfection to have that within your portfolio because, as you said, it was a positive earning asset while in theory be providing diversification. And at this point in time, it seems quite difficult for that asset class to provide any sort of significant real returns to your portfolio going forward. So I want to get into, you know, the basics of the options, Greeks, but the way I know you think about it is you basically have, at a oversimplification, you have three trading levers. You have delta, vega, and gamma. Can you kind of break those down for the audience of, of what those are and why those are your three trading levers? Yeah, I mean, the main components to the prices of any sort of options are, are those three levers. And ultimately, in, in order, uh, the most valuable one or the most uh, what lever is going to drive the price of, of options the most is, is the directional one. It's the delta. It's, it's do you have a directional view? Do you think the market's going up or down? And ultimately, that's going to be the greatest component to feed into the price of, of that option. Uh, the second most likely uh, uh, lever that's going to drive the pricing of options is your view on movement. Do you think the market's going to move a lot? Do you think it's going to move very little? And this is over a more short time period, a day, a week, a month. And this is your gamma component. So that's you know, the, the Greek that is delivering that expression that what you're looking at, again, your view, is it going to move a lot or is it going to move a little? And then finally, that Vega component, which actually, unless you're trading very specific options, has the kind of least amount of input in the price of the option is, is Vega. And essentially, that's just your view on risk. Do you think that the market is pricing in too little risk right now, or do you think it's pricing in too much risk? And that Vega component is isolating essentially that forward risk prediction uh, of the marketplace. The one thing I want to toss toss in here is, is the VIX. The VIX is a very useful tool when used appropriately, but uh, for somebody that uh, you know is in this space and likes to communicate with clients about what we're doing, it's a very painful instrument to have out there. It's easily digestible. Everybody refers to it. Everybody thinks about it. And they think of the VIX as volatility. The VIX essentially is not volatility at all. If you're thinking about those three levers uh, of directional movement and risk and volatility, most likely falling more so into that risk component, the VIX is essentially 70% directional, 29% market movement, and only 1% risk. So it tells you very, very little 
about volatility and much more about your directional view. And do you think the market's going to move a lot over the, the next week? No, I'm glad you pointed that out because I would think that a lot of times people think Vega uh, is implied volatility, so it's represented by the VIX. But we're talking about something very specific or different. We're more talking about tenors or time horizons. And when you're trading volatility in over shorter duration or, or tenors, the gamma matters much more. And if you're looking for a, a long play on volatility, that's where your Vega is going to matter more because you're really betting on just the expansion and contraction of Vega. Is that a fair oversimplification? No, that, that's, that's incredibly fair. I want to get into kind of what you guys do at Convexitas, the way you look at overlays. And we'll talk about kind of a, a vanilla or oversimplified strategy just to give people a, an illustrative point of the way you think about um, hedging overlays. But more importantly, it acts as an intuition pump for us to have a further discussion. If I want to oversimplify it, I would say you guys uh, create a diagonal that's basically long gamma and short vega. And so maybe you can break down to me for me, what's a, what's a diagonal? What's long gamma, short vega? And how do you structure a book like that? Yeah, so when we're looking at working with with, with folks, there, there's kind of two main important pieces. Uh, we're firm believers that option markets move quite rapidly, and thus systematized strategies are not attractive because it most likely takes a sales staff two, three years to go ahead and raise assets, utilizing that systematized uh, historical performance or even you know, we'll call it theoretical historical performance. And by the time the assets show up, something's changed. And so we don't view systematized strategies as the way to perform anything in the volatility spectrum. So first off, we do everything on a discretionary basis, but with, with risk guardrails. I mean, we absolutely are not doing a different thing than what we were saying, but we afford ourselves the flexibility to utilize discretion. The other piece of that is the operational side, which is that overlay which we'll go ahead and dig into further later. But those are kind of our, our two key pillars of implementing any of these structures. Now, the details of a, of a diagonal. Why are we thinking about implementing strategies using that as our core backdrop? So any of the strategies that we're going to create are first and foremost created around a structural and potentially behavioral, but mostly structural inefficiency that we see in the marketplace that we think is going to be persistent um, over long swath of time. And we go ahead and monitor that to make sure that our core implementation uh, is indeed truly taking advantage of inefficiencies in the marketplace. So that component of a diagonal that uh, Jason suggested is essentially just long gamma, short vega. How do we go ahead and express that and what inefficiencies are we looking to take advantage of? The long gamma piece, long gamma, we're buying shorter dated options. Right? These are the options that are going to have the biggest P&L movement based on that, once again, underlying movement in markets. We're, 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 this is our view on movement. The movement is mispriced, and we're expressing that by being long gamma. Why do we believe this is a structural inefficiency in the marketplace? Well, essentially, over the last, call it eight years, there's been a successful growth of short volatility and again, we would argue, I would argue this is not volatility, this is short gamma, but short volatility product, especially in the institutional space. And the short volatility product is essentially exchanging equity or hedge fund-like risk into this new category. And why people think this is an interesting category is over that time frame, systematized short volatility, again, short gamma in my view, strategies have outperformed 
hedge funds at a much lower fee-based and increased transparency. So this seems like a win all around. It, historically, the squiggly line looks a lot like a composite hedge fund. So it feels like this is a good rotation of product. You're charging me 25, 35 basis points rather than, you know, nobody's two and 20 more, but we'll say one and a half and 15. And you have full transparency and daily liquidity. This feels like a home run all around. But what this is driven is a significant increase in the amount of folks that are selling index options with a short time frame and actually close to the money. Because again, if I'm trying to re replicate a hedge fund exposure, we'll call it a beta 0.5, or if I'm trying to replicate equity expo exposure, a beta of, of one, you gotta be selling some meaty options. So you're selling essentially one month at the money puts to go ahead and, and replicate this exposure. Now, why, why one month? I could select you know one week, one month, three months, a year. Two factors. One, you're implementing these strategies in a systematized fashion. And so you, you want to have a thematic means <laughs> of go ahead and rebalancing those portfolios. And the easiest way to do that is expiration. Third Friday, every single month, that's when these portfolios reset. And why would you do this monthly rather than quarterly or yearly? Well, you, you need to be able to have the potential return profile that looks something similar to you know a hedge fund with a beta 0.5 or equities of a beta of one. If you're selling one-year options, even today where implied volatilities out in time are, are pretty high, you're only going to collect 7-8% premium in the S&P 500. That's not a total potential return high enough to go ahead and mimic those exposures. So if you'd sell one-month options and rebalance them every month, you at least have the potential to generate double-digit plus returns. And I was thinking about, you were, you were just saying, you know, this has changed over the last eight years. I think about like 10 years ago, institutional systematized vol selling was doing it more quarterly, right? Because that was it. It was a, a lazier way of doing it, for lack of a better term, right? And the consultants had them, all their pitch books were selling quarterly options. And then things like March 2020 come along and people get blown out. And they're saying, well, if we do monthly or weekly, we're getting a lot more at-bats and that's going to smooth out your P&L. And do you think that's what they, they convinced institutional vol sellers to come, you know, to reduce that tenor, to bring it into a month or even weekly? Is that part of those flows? And that obviously you're then taking advantage of that? Yeah, no, I, I think it really accelerated more mid-2017. And I, I think the transition started kind of 2016. And essentially the reason for that is people needed higher returns. And so they kept moving to shorter and shorter and shorter tenors, accelerating the, as you say, at-bats that you have and the potential returns not potential risk-adjusted returns, potential returns of doing that systematized flow. So I, I, I think it really accelerated, call it four or five years ago, but it's been maintained under a different guise of, of late that, hey, the, the risk quadrant, the path quadrant, the shorter the tenor uh, eliminates a, more of, of that uh, path dependency situation. So it was originally sold to increase returns and now is being transitioned to well, you ultimately want something that looks closer to these underlying asset classes that you replaced. And the best way to mimic those asset classes is to reduce that path dependency, which is shortening the tenor. Got it. And then, so this is the, and we're going to come back to some more specifics on the long gamma side, but then you have a, a short Vegas side of the book to maybe pay for some of that long gamma. So tell me about the short Vegas side. Yeah. So the short Vegas side is effectively, again, that, that view on risk. 
And ultimately, we believe structurally there there's things that are causing that view on risk in the future to be too expensive. One of the perpetual ones uh, that we've been seeing is essentially insurance portfolios. They're they're annuity books. They need to buy true Vega, you know, that that risk in the future of market movements. And if you think about it, it makes sense. If if you're buying an annuity, they're guaranteeing you cash flows over a long period of time, and they're going to buy a portfolio to support those cash flows that everybody says, hey, the market's going to go up over 30 years. And so ultimately, their biggest risk is path. You know, if, if, if they're spending money out every single year in distributions, the path is what ruins uh, that potential of out-earning their liabilities over 30 years if we all believe, you know, an actuarial sense that the market's going to go up uh, at those expected rates. So the easiest way for them to protect themselves from that is is purchasing Vega. Now, prior to the financial crisis, they purchased this Vega using swaps, uh, variance swaps, which essentially is you're making a, a little bit of money every day uh, or losing a little bit of money every day on the implied versus realized. We're saying, you know, the, the swaps that they purchased said the market's going to move 1% every day. And instead, it only moved, you know, three quarters of a percent. Oh, you lost money for that one day. Vice versa, you're, you're you know, buying 1% uh, daily movement. Hey, it went up 2%. That's a day where you're going to make that daily P&L. But the real meat of the P&L of that product is all those future expectations. It's, you know, 10 years out, do we think, oh, man, we're going to move a lot more <laughs> than what was currently priced in. And that's where you're going to get all your P&L because rather than one day of locking in, P&L, if it's, you know, a 10-year variant swap, we're talking improvement in price in 2,520 days. You know, that, that's where the real significance is. That's why it's the vague is that future risk expectations. And so back in, in you know, pre-2008, they would purchase five, seven, 10-year variant swaps to hedge out these portfolios, which once again makes sense. They have 30-year liabilities. They want to have something that involves a limited amount of rebalancing, but also ties into what their liability profile looks like. But this market went away post-2008. It effectively became too intrusive to bank balance sheets to keep this risk uh, on their books and no natural person to take the other side, especially in that quantity against all these insurers' annuity books. So they had to come up with a, a new means, a new means of best expressing this, this hedge that they needed for these books and the way to do that was to go into listed markets. So rather than buying these variant swaps, they're they're buying Vega in an S&P listed product. And again, they they want Vega. They want, you know, future risk changes. They don't want that gamma. They're not trying to protect the daily market movement. It it is those long-term expectations of risk changing. So where they're utilizing S&P product to kind of mimic that variance exposure is they're buying one year, 18 month, deep out of the money puts. And once they get to six months maturity, they kick those puts back out to 18 months, one year, new deep out of the money puts. And this is a bit of their treadmill to go ahead and mimic uh, that variance exposure that they once used to get in the swaps market. Now, I'm not saying these insurers are unsophisticated investors. I'm saying quite the opposite. And us as, we'll call it volatility traders, we see what they're purchasing these puts for is too expensive, but we're saying too expensive by 
20, 30, 50 basis points, which we view as significant edge. But if you're selling an annuity product, you're probably expecting to get two, two and a half, maybe even 3% annualized fees for providing that uh, service to consumers. And if for a portion of your book, you're overpaying 20, 30, 50 basis points to go ahead and sell more of that product that you're earning that two, two and a half, three percent in fees, you're happily overpaying for those puts to go ahead and sell more product. And and that's why we believe it's it's you know structural. This is persistent. It actually makes sense why these folks would happily quote unquote overpay for those puts because it allows them to continue to sell a, a a high revenue, high margin product to their consumer base. This one of the reasons why I like options is not they're not technically zero sum. Everybody has different economic um, issues that they're dealing with that they're trying to hedge or different duration of their asset base. And so people don't realize sometimes that, you know, there can be a win win situation in these sorts of scenarios. And sometimes people call large institutions like non-economic hedgers. They are hedging economically. It's just different economics than you or I have. So it's a very different scenario. So what you're really saying is that based on these structural flows, and let's say they, they're rolling their contracts at six months, this is a time where you feel that you're getting you know, an, an underpriced scenario or overpriced scenario that you can kind of pick off when you're looking to, to short Vega or sell some Vega. And you're doing that to basically cover the bleed that you have on Gamma, right? If you're long Gamma, long Gamma is fantastic trade, but there's the bleed, right? No trade is, is a free lunch. There's the bleed of that. So you're trying to cover the cost of some of that bleed by, by selling, selling some Vega about you know, six months out. Yeah, no, we, we absolutely believe that both these fulcrums for our baseline implementation of our strategy have edge. And we're trying to essentially maximize the edge of each of those two positions to deliver our expected outcome for the portfolio in terms of, of performance expectations. One additive before I we run away from the you know Vega space is if anybody's been, you know, listeners have been following uh, any sort of conversations in, in the volatility arena, we we know that the the market for the last essentially 12 months has nicely continued to march higher with very low realized, and I think it's been published a bunch of late, that there's not been a 5% drawdown in a significant period of time. All that being said, the last, you know, six months, and especially the last three months, this, this Vega component, those longer dated options that are really pricing in future risk, less so daily movements today, but that future risk have continued to climb pretty aggressively so uh, of late. And you know, I would say that's a, a conflict from what we've actually seen in daily movements uh, in the market that these options are, are expanding quite aggressively. And I, I think there's two components that are, are, are driving this. One that I'd say, once again, is kind of more on the structural sense, and one that I'm, I'm I'll say, gathering from my previous experience of, of working in a long, short, distressed hedge fund. So in the structural sense, there's been a significant increase in defined outcome vehicles. They've expanded in the ETF land, but they're also obviously popular products in the structured product arena for, for banks. And, and ultimately, these, these products are, are buying some longer dated put and selling some longer dated call in pure simplicity sense. And this is to obviously deliver S&P returns, but at more of a spot six to spot seven five beta exposure, along with everybody loves the concept of a floor and their equity exposure when markets are all time highs. So 
very simplistically, if these products are increasing in size, that means you have a lot of natural longer dated put buyers and call sellers, but put buyers that are driving up the prices of these longer dated deep ish out of the money puts. And again, these are not necessarily economic <laughs> buyers and sellers of these options. These are folks that have created a product that's going to deliver at some point in the future, a defined outcome uh, of PL uh, at a, one random date in the future, one single date. And it's going to cause them to auto purchase these, we'll call it one year on average, you know, call it 15 ish percent out of the money puts and purely based on, on product sales. So that's, that's been a, a, a new driver over the last handful of years as those sales teams have successfully expanded the defined outcome universe. The one that I think is uh, more, more fun from, from my background is if you're operating a hedge fund, you most likely are have your you know favorite ideas to go long, your least favorite ideas that you're short, but usually in there, there's some macro component on, on the short side. Forget you know just linearly shorting equities. You have you're trying to put something with serious convexity into that portfolio, and a favorite means of, of doing that historically has been CDX contracts uh, in either investment grade or or high yield. And the reason why a hedge fund would would like to implement this kind of convex view using those instruments is one they're very easy. They're very liquid. You go ahead and buy several yards, which would be billions of, of notional of these products, easy to push through. They have, you know, the average, you know, the normal contract is five-year maturity, and you tend to roll it every six months when a new one is issued. So it has very, very low maintenance. Optically, at, at this point in time, and usually when you get to these parts of the cycle, it, it seems cheap. Like IG CDX right now is 45 basis points per annum, high yields about 285 basis points for Adam. So it feels cheap. And most recently, there was a great success story of using this tool that was quite public. You know, Pershing back in, in March 2020 told everybody how many billions they made from having these products to hedge their portfolio and how they redeployed uh, that, you know, those, those profits uh, at an opportune time. But a lot of hedge funds utilize these products. But what, what I think has changed here is how the Federal Reserve responded to the crisis that we had in 2020 was essentially have that new tool of being willing to purchase risk assets. It wasn't only treasuries. It wasn't only MBS, which we can kind of argue is a risk asset. But they went and purchased investment grade credit and even high yield credit, some directly, some just the ETFs. And so if I'm a hedge fund and I want to have that hyper-convex macro to backstop my, my book in case something really nasty happens. And my historical way of doing this, of putting this in the portfolio, is trading these CDX contracts. My conviction that the Fed will allow credit to actually you know, expand <laughs> as much as it has in the past, my conviction level is probably low um, because we've seen them essentially stop it out. And if they stop out credit, sure, maybe that cradles equity markets, but that certainly isn't guaranteed that that's what's going to take place. 
And all the long risk in my hedge fund is, is probably equity and equity-like risk. So now I'm introducing significant basis. There was always basis to this transaction, but it's starting to feel quite significant due to this backstop of the Fed and this new tool that they added to their toolkit a year and a half ago. So if I'm looking to replace that credit exposure that has that hyper-convexity during a nasty event, and I don't think, again, credit is going to possibly be that tool due to intervention, they're going to use equity markets. And the best way to mimic that exposure that they had prior is S&P 500 product, longer dated options, and deep out of the money, way out of the money options. I'm talking, you know, one year out S&P 3000 strike, 2500 strike, 2000 strike. And that's what I believe is actually taking place is that these hedge funds are adding that hyperconvex macro exposure to their books that they always have done. They're just using a different product because the one that they used to use has, has lost its conviction that it's going to work due to Fed intervention in the last crisis. There's a lot in there I want to try to unpack, and I'll try to touch on a few things. One, you talked about basis risk. Basis risk is just basically if the thing you're looking to hedge, if you're using proxies for a hedge that aren't that instrument, you could always have basis risk and things can get a little wonky on you and you might not be providing the hedge you're looking for. The second thing was Ackman's trade was, you know, some have written it's one of the greatest trades of all times, at least on like a nominal basis, but it was pretty smart. Allegedly, in the beginning of 2020, he was concerned about the market. So instead of he was going to sell his equity positions down to uh, reduce exposure. But instead, you know, he bought that that CDX protection. And, you know, what's interesting is he, he even admitted he didn't expect it to pay off within the first month. And because it paid off in the first month, he had like a 50x return. But if it had gone on another month and he was paying that premium on that protection, it would have been like a 25x return. And subsequently, so if it had lasted months and months, it, weighed, it, it may not have been quite the convex return that people expected. And he admitted to that, you know, which is fantastic. The other thing, part of that, though, is that you and I will maybe get into more of this later. What we also kind of have to agree with, he put on a, a negatively correlated trade. So that way he didn't have to reduce the notional value of his equity book. Equity sell off. He gets this convex payment out of his hedge. And then he monetizes that to then roll back into his equities at a lower nav point. And this is part of the issue with uh, solutions or options overlay business that we'll get into, that this is a much better product for you to maintain your long equity beta or your long GDP assets while still protecting yourself. And then the compounding of that over time is what effectively and efficiently compounds portfolios or compounds wealth over time much more effectively than having maybe uncorrelated assets. The other key thing I want to touch on that you really just pointed out, and you're the first one you've been telling you know me and others about this privately, and you've been spot on is everybody's seeing a lot of this this buying and leap options and everybody's like, you know, why is this getting, you know, why is this, why nobody really knows why that's happened. And I think you have a, a great way of uh, attacking it. You think spot on they're they're moving from the CDS or CDX trade into these leap options. But as, as we know, there's no free lunch and every trade has a pro and con. And if you're just buying you know, 12 to 18 months deep out of the money puts, you have a lot of drift risk. And so if the market goes from here, it goes up another 50%. And then it sells off 50%. Well, congratulations, you're not even close to your deltas. I mean, you may, you may be getting a bit of a Vega kicker, but it's not providing the protection you once thought you were buying. Yeah, I'd, I'd argue the biggest probable issue with this implementation 
is again because you're trying to buy vega which again is that view on risk in the future well if we're already raising the price of that future view on risk when the bad event happens at some point in time does that future view on risk actually expand and i would argue that the real probable issue with utilizing these tools that are becoming much more expensive is when you get that 10% correction, there actually isn't a Vega expansion. There's even potentially a Vega contraction as everybody runs to go ahead and monetize that position and say, shoot, I was thinking this was gonna be that 10, 20, 50 Xer, and it was a three Xer. And that was not nearly what I had in my models that was gonna support this portfolio. Get the heck out of it. And everybody steamrolls to go ahead and do that at the same time. And you actually get Vega contraction during that event. Now, you know, sure, if March 2020 happens and we violently sell off 35%, th these are going to be profitable positions. But in your random 10, 15% leisurely correction, I, I'm not thinking that these, these tools are going to actually provide the benefit that everybody is anticipating when they're constructing their portfolio. And just like everything in life, it's the price that you pay, right? Like just to use some random numbers, let's say Vegas at 10, but it's been getting bid up and it's now at, you know, if, if we had a March 2020 like event, you, if you were buying at 10, you'd expect it to expand to hundred. And so you made a 10 X return, but now it's getting bid up so much. You're buying it at 50 and your models, either thinking you're going to get a 10 X return. Cause that's what you saw historically. But once again, it's the price you pay. And then, and, and then the violence of that move, if it's going to materialize, like you said, if Vegas is actually going to expand. And then are you going to monetize it? So it's a lot maybe trickier than people realize. And, and speaking of tricky, I want to go back to the, the trade we were talking about initially with long gamma short vega. The issue is like when, like we said, when you're buying options, they're, they're a fantastic trade because as Nancy Davis says, debit card investing, right? You just know what your premium spend is. You can't blow up. So you, you get those death by a thousand paper cuts. So to offset that, you can sell a little bit of volatility. You can go short vega like you were talking about. But now you're, you're, you're bringing in some complexity, right? It's never quite straightforward. Markets can get wonky. You can get pinned to your short Vegas side. You know, you can have drift risk. I mean, how do you assess all the risks in your book when you're also selling volatility to help pay for some of that, some of that long volatility? Yeah. So again, our, our, our foundation is that we really think we're harvesting structural inefficiencies in, in both of these legs. That's said, we're super upfront. This is negatively correlated. Market goes up you should expect us to lose money. At the same time, we're not sugarcoating it. This is uh, a pain. We're paying every single day to go ahead and get this exposure. So those are the two things that we're, we're fighting as managers. You know, this is definitely pain every day to get this hyper-convex exposure. And again, if the market goes up, you should expect us to lose money. This is also why I kind of started with the concept, if we don't believe systematized implementation of these strategies works. You have to have discretion to go ahead and implement these strategies correctly. And that discretion, along with, you know, targeting specific uh, means of generating additional edge of which exact options we're picking to get long gamma and which exact options we're picking to be short Vega, is the continued maintenance of the portfolio to try to advert some of that daily theta that we're, we're, we're paying. So when the market goes down 3%, are we adjusting the portfolio? Yeah, we're adjusting it slightly. We're capturing a little bit of the benefit that would took place during that event. If the portfolio, if the market goes up 5%, are we adjusting the portfolio? Absolutely. We need to reset 
in common terms, the attachment points. And, and we hate that word, attachment points, because this is a living, breathing you know, strategy that's continually operating. If the market goes up 5% and goes down 10% the day after, you should expect us to deliver fully on that down 10% because we're adjusting that portfolio as the market is moving every single day. So I don't know if that specifically answers your question, uh, but ultimately we really believe that the it's necessary to have discretionary management of these strategies within risk guardrails, uh, but you cannot replicate this in a systematized structure. Another way of asking it too is, how do you think about the ratio between your long gamma trades and your short vega trades? Or do you ever think about even hedging out a little bit of that short vega exposure with different tenors? So uh, on that side of things, we are always, always net long put contracts. So I, I get people are saying, thinking this is negatively correlated, but yet you're selling vega, you're selling volatility. How does that make sense? And ultimately, the reason why we're very comfortable doing that and harvesting that inefficiency that we believe is structurally there is we're always net long put contracts, meaning if the market goes down 50% tomorrow, we're delivering a positive P&L. There's no hidden risk associated in what we're doing due to the fact that we're net long those, those put contracts and what we're doing. What I believe Jason is trying to get out of me here is that <laughs> there, there's a, a third piece to what we're looking to implement and is in a much, much, much smaller size, we purchase some true disaster protection within this portfolio, which we'd call it, you know, 12 to 18 month deep, deep, deep out of the money puts. Now, I just spoke 15 minutes about why I think <laughs> these are incredibly expensive here and what the cause is that for. And this is why we think it's important to operate any of these option strategies in a discretionary fashion. If they were systematized, we would continue to be purchasing full size of these puts that are very expensive here. But because we have that discretionary ability for operating our strategy, we're, we're not doing it in full size. <laughs> well, and I was really trying to touch on the being just that net long puts is the most important piece to that. But also with, uh, with long gamma, you kind of came up the other day with a, a Plinko analogy. Do you want to share that with the audience? Yeah. So again, the the backdrop here is we we think that there is structural inefficiencies that we're looking to extract and you're hiring us to utilize our discretion to improve upon you know something that uh, you'd expect from the delivery of harvesting those structural inefficiencies and with that i'm not trying to say there's any sort of market timing associated with this but we do think right now is an interesting point in time to just have a little bit of that long gamma positioning within a portfolio in, in, in general. And what Jason's referring to in my Plinko analogy is, you know, I think everybody's uh, seen the prices right once or twice in their lives. And one of the games on the prices right is, is Plinko. And Plinko is there's a bunch of stakes in a board and you're going to drop a puck down the middle. It's going to rattle down off of all those stakes and then fill out a range of outcomes. Now, if you were to drop, you know, a thousand of those Plinko chips, we're going to end up with is a essentially a standard distribution. And that's what everybody expects in their portfolio. Now, my argument is we've gone from a thousand of those stakes that are going to kick around the chip to create that standard distribution to more like two of those stakes, which is essentially monetary policy and fiscal policy is dominating the fair price of all assets. So if your Plinko board, rather than having a thousand you know, spikes, 
and it only has two, how does it change your expectation? Well, if you're dropping that plink out chip and the spikes are, we'll call it, you know, a little off center on either side, essentially you just expect it to go right down the middle. Like we're going to get 20 basis point returns every single day, like clockworks. It's just not hitting any of the spikes. There's only two spikes and it's just threading the needle every single day. But that one day where there's a little bit of spin on that release of that plinko chip and it hits one of those spikes, it's going to go everywhere. And that doesn't necessarily mean down. It's, it could be up 5%. It could be down 5%. But essentially, we've, we've removed the concept of a normalized distribution. And what you should be expe expecting is essentially a bunch of nothing going up 10, 20, 30 basis points every single day, threading the needle and dropping right into the center. But when something happens, it's going to be dramatic. And again, either direction. It could be up 5% or it could be down 5%. But there's very little intermittent movement. It's either the perfectly down the middle or haywire. That's good. I like that analogy. But I want to I want to come back and touch on this idea of uh, systematized or fixed spend. This is a bit of a a thorn in the side, for lack of a better term, for you and I. We talk about this a lot privately. And there's what, what I hope everybody's seeing is there's pros and cons to every strategy. And what we're seeing a lot now is a lot of fixed spend tail risk protection. But hopefully through this conversation, people are starting to see that you know, there's a lot of um, institutional players, there's a lot of structured products players, there's a lot of players that are affecting the flows and options markets. And so therefore, you know, you're going to see a, a, a lot of different overpriced or underpriced points in the vol surface. And so even though we're talking on a, you know, allegedly a very systematized, you know, podcast with trend followers are very systematized products, we view the future as, you know, man plus machine. And so you need a bit of systemification, but you also need a lot of discretion, especially when you have a lot of large hedgers in the space. And so, you know, what can happen is part of maybe the way you're looking at it is you want to have that latitude or a little bit of freedom to look at kind of the span of deltas and also the span of tenors and try to pick your spots where you think the market is overpriced or underpriced. And if you're just doing fixed spend, you know, we talked about fixed spend systemized selling, but if you're doing that on the buying side, the question is, are you overpaying for that protection? Like we just talked about with buying leaps, it's the price you pay. So you may be overpaying and then your model may not be accurate on the convexity of the returns you're seeking. And then more importantly, you may not be uh, attaching that or toggling it to your notional equity beta exposure. Now, is buying systematized fixed spend, you know, put options better than zero protection on your equity beta? Absolutely. But it may you need somebody that has a much more discretionary outlook, like Zed does, to to really, you know, it to really toggle those positions around to make sure you're covering the, your notional equity beta exposure. Is that a fair way of of looking at it? Yeah, I mean, I think you could really break it down into why do people like fixed spend strategies, and it's that it's a known quantity. The most I can lose running this program is two percent of my portfolio per annum, um, where with something that's discretionary, I, I have no cap. You know, the market goes up 100% next year, I'm probably going to lose 20%, maybe a little more. And that sounds like a, a, an uncapped potential risk. Now, you should be very happy. Your equity portfolio is up 100%. And even if I cost you 20%, you're net up 80. And I think most people would be happy with an 80% return year. But I'm, I am uncapped. And, and again, people like that concept. Why do I think it's a poor way of utilizing your negatively correlated uh, allocation capital, if you will, 
is one, I think monetization is close to impossible when you have a fixed expend uh, kind of concept. So you're gonna buy whatever, six, you're gonna spend 1% to buy six month out in time puts and you know we're gonna do it again for the next six months. That's gonna be our budget per annum. And what happens if you buy that put and the market goes down 20% tomorrow? What's, what's your plan? Are you, are you gonna monetize it? Do you buy a new put? Do you not buy any puts now? You say, hey, that was what I had it there for, you move on. And I think the answer is most people freeze. Most people freeze in that environment when the market is down 20% and they do nothing. And the correct answer is you, you should adjust your positioning to something. Like you, you, you bought this put, it went from way out of the money to way in the money. It's up 10X in term, premium terms when you put it on. Like you should do something. But in that environment, when everything feels chaotic, most people do nothing. And that's problematic with that kind of concept versus something that is discretionary, that's based on risk controls, where there's a, a natural monetization process that's going on. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite examples of, of it's not exactly a, a pure budget put buying program. One of the most common institutional trades to hedge an equity portfolio are longer dated put spread collars. So a put spread collar, all it is, is you're, you're buying one put, you're selling another put that's further out of the money, and then you're selling an out of the money call to make this premium neutral. And I wanna stress the words premium neutral because a lot of people say costless. It is not costless. The fair value of anything is what it is marked at any given day. It is premium neutral day one. Now, there was several large pensions that we'll call it good market timing that put on three and five year put spread collars essentially days before Lehman in 2008. And so they instantly had a fantastic mark to market benefit from putting on that position, you know, a month later. It, it was it was great. But what's going on during that time is everything else is melting down around them. And if you said, hey, guys, I think it's time to go ahead and monetize this exposure that you had. One, they say, go away. <laughs> I, I have so many other fires like I'm happy it's there. I need it to be there if everything goes down another 50. What happens if S&P goes to zero? Like, I need this here. And so they don't monetize it. And what ended up happening for both the three and the five-year structure is they made zero money. They just sat, they put it on at the absolute perfect time. There was no monetization. We wake up three and five years later, the market is rallied back for the most part. And that structure they put on literally made zero money. Now, what, what benefit did that actually provide that portfolio? It, it, it probably made the agent in charge of that position feel warm and fuzzy that they were down less than some of their peers, and maybe they got to keep their job. But they didn't actually do anything within their portfolio to improve returns. They didn't add risk. Hey, we have this here. Let's add some more risk on, on the way down. They didn't monetize it. Hey, let's convert this in, into cash. Everybody just freezes. And I, I, I view that as probably, you know, I would argue that just you know, buying puts is, is a negative expected return within a portfolio. But I think the more important piece is the monetization component. Is it actually providing you any value, providing you the leverage to go ahead and rebalance during these drawdown events? Is it, you know, causing you the, the increase the cash or monetization? Is, is it causing you to do proactive good decisions? And I've seen it just way too many times. It, it just does not. Yeah, I think for 
talking about fixed spend, like if you're fixed spend 2% on put options and let's say you actually did, didn't freeze, you monetize perfectly in like a March 2020 like event. So you get all this convex cash on your books. Fantastic. Um, as long as we have a V-shaped recovery, you're fine. But the problem is, like you said, the second or third leg down, you've just monetized all your inventory. And now if you're at a fixed spend of 2%, IV has expanded. And now you're looking to buy some more protection, but now you're dramatically overspending because you're just looking for a systematized process. So, you know, it has a pros and cons to it, but that's why it was a perfect segue to monetization for me for the way do you, how do you look at monetizing your structure? So for example, you have, you have one thing, it's, it's one thing to put these on in risk on environment, but then as we shift to risk off, you know, how are you monetizing? What are your heuristics for monetizing? You know, how are then maybe you shifting those three trading levers of, of Delta Vega Gamma? You know, are you, are you shifting the way you're viewing Gamma after like a sell-off like event, but how are you monetizing until you get to that shift? Yeah, so that's the the mix of yes, it's it's discretionary, but we have risk guardrails. And our risk guardrails create a big influence on when we're going to monetize structures. And and again, our monetization is very different than the concept of on-off switch. We are always on. It is just adjusting that positioning taking a little bit of the P&L that we've made and putting it in, in, in our pockets, but we're still there. We're still there full bore delivering what we're telling investors that we're going to deliver in all these various scenarios and how we're able to do that, how we're essentially able to, you know, optically take some chips off the table while still providing the full benefit of what we're saying that we're going to deliver in these environments is due to that long gamma piece. You know, today, our, if the market were to go down 1%, you're expecting us to make 20 basis points during that environment. But if tomorrow it goes down another 1%, rather than 20 basis points, we're probably making 33. And if it goes down another 1%, then we start making 50 basis points. That long gamma positioning accelerates our benefit as the market continues to move lower. And it's also true if the market continues to move higher. Again, if the market goes up 1% tomorrow, you're expecting us to lose 20 basis points. If it goes up another 1% the following day, you're only expecting us to lose 15 basis points. It starts decreasing as the market continues to move higher. So it is, it's that long gamma positioning that allows us to, in, in I would say common lingo, monetize the position while still delivering our expectations during those events. And then if we have like a March 2020 like sell-off, and going into the sell-off, your long gamma, short Vega, you know, and then obviously risk gets repriced, people panic, people are looking for, you know, insurance after the flood. How do you then reposition the book where you think you can take advantage if we end up in a sustained higher volatility environment as, as we phase shift from a low vol to a medium or higher vol environment? So, you know, this is a, we'll see how we implement it in, in longer through time, but through a lot of my past experience, uh, the long, the short, excuse me, Vega component is something that we have discretion around. So we, we think for all these structural reasons, we should have a, a core short Vega component within the portfolio, but it's actually not one of our guardrails. We're allowed to flip from short Vega to long Vega expressions. And we believe that the reason why you need to have this flexibility is there's there's actually a component in the structural sense of these short volatility sellers that compress Vega in the first move lower. Not the second move, only the first move lower. And a simple example of that is if you're hiring somebody to implement that systematized put selling uh, positioning, once again, we'll just say every expiration, you're selling an at the money 
uh, put notional one-to-one, whatever that allocation is. But you allow them, you're paying them an extra seven basis points versus the very simplistic uh, structure of doing it purely systematically to allow them a marginal amount of discretion. Now, that discretion is going to be limited to you, you still have to be one-to-one notional. You still can only sell puts, but you, you have the ability to choose different puts rather than that treadmill of, of selling at the money is every month at expiration. So the market goes down violently. That individual has, has likely outperformed because they were probably taking advantage of skew and selling something a little bit out of the money versus at the money for their benchmark. Um, they've been moving around a little bit and they've, they've locked in a, a 1% outperformance to date to that benchmark environment. And again, if you're only charging seven basis points more than the vanilla systematized implementation of that strategy, 100 basis points out return when you're charging seven, that's fantastic. Let's turn it off. Let's, let's, let's lock that in and move on with their lives. And the best way for them to go ahead and do that is they sell really, really long dated puts. They're, they're stuck again selling one-to-one notional and they can only sell puts. And the best way to remove that short market movement, that, that short gamma in that portfolio of selling those monthlies is instead selling that one month put, you sell a one year put. And taking that inventory from short one month and moving it out to a year changes that profile. Rather than selling market movement, rather than selling gamma, now you're selling that view on risk. You're selling Vega. You're selling longer dated options. And this is why we we believe this is going to structurally happen essentially every time on that first move lower, key first move lower. So December 2018, you had an environment where the market was moving quite rapidly and quite rapidly lower, but you actually saw longer dated fixed strike option prices fall during that event. So this is an opportunity to flip from a, a short Vega expression to a long Vega expression. Now, that was a bad decision. We instantly rebounded in January 2019, but it seemed like a mispricing and risk. We're moving a lot, we're moving lower quickly, but yet longer dated Vega is not expanding. It's time to flip that core positioning within that portfolio. Obviously, February and March 2020 was different. February, we had, you know, eight straight days that were down, down 13%. And we saw no Vega expansion. It didn't fall like it did in December 2018. But we saw no fixed strike Vega expansion for that first move lower. But then we got a second leg. And all hell broke loose uh, in terms of that Vega expansion. Everything was compressed and every, you know, you saw the headlines, oh my goodness, Vega is higher than it was in 2008, you know, the world's on fire. But it was that, you know, reactivity due to the compression of the first leg that you get an extra kind of coiled spring that if that second leg actually takes place, it probably overcorrects, right? It, it, it should have been moving higher and it didn't for a 10, 15% move, weird. But the second 10, 50% move, holy cow, did it overreact now because we coiled that spring by not allowing it to expand in, in that first leg. So we, we allow ourselves within our discretion and our guardrails to be able to use that lever to flip from a, a, a short Vega positioning, a long Vega positioning. But that is the, you know, one out of 100 days we're, we're doing that. That is, that is not the a lever that we're flipping quite often. Another thing I want to quickly point out, there's no good uh, proxies or benchmarks for what we do, but you, you kept mentioning fixed strike volatility. And this is another way to think about like, um, you know, 
the non-tradable VIX index is a terrible proxy for, for volatility as, as you start out at the beginning of the conversation. But a simple way of thinking about fixed strike volatility is let's say I'm buying a put, let's say 10% out of the money and in current volatility is at 10 and I'm buying that put at an at a implied volatility of 15. So as, as, as the market sells off, let's say that volatility goes from 10 to 13 and a half. Well, the headlines are going to say, based on the VIX index, the fear index, volatility is up 35%. Well, let's say that on that, that fixed strike put that you bought 10% of the money, the volatility has actually gone down from 15 to 13 and a half. So you're actually losing money, even though it's getting closer to your delta. And I think that's, that's the thing that people a lot of miss. Once again, it's what's the price you pay. And so, you know, VIX index gives us maybe a proxy for today's volatility, but it's not telling you what is the price you paid for something and has vol moved um, in any sort of direction from the price you paid for that implied volatility. Is there another way or a better analogy you have for fixed strike vol? Or? No, I mean, that, that's a bit of why I said the VIX is 70% directional, 29% kind of the, the gamma space and only 1% volatility. It's, it's that exact portion of it doesn't actually tell you what's happening to the underlying S&P 500 options, either expansion or contraction in that implied volatility of that option, essentially at all. And even that piece, if, if volatility of those options is moving wildly, that's going to be the smallest piece of the price movement of VIX. The, the bigger movement is always going to be that, that you know, delta component, the directional side of things. So I, I think you sum it up you know, quite nicely that essentially you know, VIX is, is floating. It's rolling up and down to referencing all these various underlying options where what you're really buying when you think of 90% of vol trades is the, the implied volatility of an actual option, the fixed strike and it's very, very different, and they tell you very different messages uh, in v- different environments. You know, in the last few years, it's been uh, it's become fashionable to maybe talk about is vol an asset class or is volatility the only asset class? I actually want to talk about something different that I think gets rarely talked about in our industry, and that's I, I think almost like another asset class is capital efficiency or overlays. And so maybe I will give a quick uh, shout out to your uh, co-founder Devin Anderson, who's probably in a cave coding somewhere in Connecticut right now. Because you guys are always trying to figure out how to really help clients with their capital efficient overlays in their individual accounts. And so what's really great about what you guys create with this capital efficient overlays is the idea is, look, you're holding a long equity beta book, or let's just say a long GDP book. You guys can come into on their system and provide all of these over, overlay option strategies so they don't have to de-risk or de-lever their equity beta. So like a lot of people are looking at, you know, 60 port, 60, 40 portfolios, right? But as like Mart Spitznagel talked about, now maybe you can hold 97% long equity beta. As long as you have a put option overlay strategy, you can be, you can be more comfortably long equity beta and be able to sleep at night. Now, the issue is people go, well, as, as you've referenced many times, this is maybe a negative carry position, right? But you have a structural negative correlation and those two combined over time, when you're rebalancing those sell-offs, leads to much higher compounding of wealth because you're reducing the volatility tax. But if I'm being fair, the knock on it is we have very little data points. You know, these sell-offs are fair, like large sell-offs are fairly infrequent. So people don't believe that you may be compounding to a higher terminal wealth over time. So I'm, I'm curious to how you think about those capital efficient overlays and more importantly, providing that liquidity we need in a sell-off. So then you can be rebalancing and buying more equity at a lower nav point. Yeah, so 
I think there's five key factors for the you know standard investor for why doing these types of strategies via an overlay is important. Um, first one that you touched on is capital efficiency. If you had $10 million S and P 500 and you wanted to add this to your portfolio, I don't, I don't need any cash. You know, it, it is your $10 million of S and P 500. That's collateralizing everything I'm doing. So in a fully funded structure, you need to find cash somewhere to give it to that investor. With me, it's capital uh, efficient. You can just go ahead and utilize my services supported by your current asset portfolio. Once you have that piece, it actually allows you to size things appropriately. If 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 you have to allocate cash to someone, it's it's hard to make it more than a two, three, five percent of that portfolio. Uh, and because of that, you 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 probably actually don't allocate enough to it, right? It, it, you have that they view this, you know, dead money sitting over here. It's only going to pay off once every ten years, so on and so forth. And so when it pays off that ten years, you're like, oh, that you know, three percent allocation made five percent cool. The rest of my portfolio is down 40. That didn't really do a ton for me. You're happy you had it, but it really didn't do much for you. Where in an overlay, if you had $10 million of S&P 500, you can overlay the full $10 million and, uh, and expect a, a significant benefit during those events, which then transitions into that portfolio construction side. If you can size it appropriately, you don't need to be 60-40 anymore. You can be 100% risk assets and have the overlay go ahead and be that negatively correlated ballast to your portfolio. So it's, it's twofold. It allows you to size appropriately to make sure you get enough value out of it when the bad things happen, but it allows you to change your portfolio construction today. You can be more risk on today. And so the third thing I always talk about is transparency. If you're really going to lean into this in your portfolio, I'm actually going to go from you know, $10 million of, of S&P 500 to $20 million of S&P 500. So you're there. You need that transparency. You need to be able to see what the heck we're doing. Uh, and, and so you have that comfortability to go ahead and increase that positioning, which is, again, incredibly important. Um, the fourth factor that I always talk about is taxes. Uh, if, if you are going to go ahead and reallocate from your current portfolio to some new structure, even if it's the greatest thing in the world, you most likely your $10 million of, of S&P 500 as a cost basis, much, much lower than today. And so the friction of moving from what you currently have into this new structure, even if it's the greatest thing on the plant, is problematic. It's a big loss, leg friction to the tax man that's going to take place in that rebalancing event. And an overlay allows you to adjust that, that risk exposure within your portfolio without creating a day one tax event. And then the fifth thing, which is the most important thing by far, is liquidity. When you're doing things via an overlay and the nasty event happens and we're producing, knock on wood, the returns that we're, we're hopefully going to provide in that environment, those returns are unencumbered cash directly into your portfolio that are accessible instantly. And this means that when you're in that third week of March 2020 and you see a pile of cash in your portfolio, Rather than freezing, like most other investors, doing nothing, being scared, and hiding under your rock, you're being proactive. You're using this cash to facilitate capital calls for your private equity investments. Using this cash to continue to facilitate your lifestyle. You don't. You're not becoming a forced seller of assets to pay your mortgage or whatever other you know needed cash outflows that you have every single day. And even in the large you know corrections where we're producing hopefully a significant amount of cash, it allows you to be proactive. 
it allows you to look around that landscape and say, oh my goodness, a lot of things are, are cheap. I'm looking at this close end fund trading at a 30% discount. You get to be that person that takes advantage of that disconnect in that marketplace during that distressed environment. So, you know, those are the kind of like five key things that we highlight why just having the correct operational structure of an overlay for a negatively correlated strategy are important and really stress. It's that liquidity. It's that liquidity during the drawdown event, being able to snag that cash instantaneously and redeploy it where you see fit uh, is almost essential for having uh, uh, as a piece of your negatively correlated portfolio. Yeah, that's my favorite part. I'm not in, uh, ever trying to convince anyone of anything, but it always seems patently obvious to you and I or people like us that why you'd want a structurally negatively correlated asset, this convex cash position or liquidity position. Um, but people that think it, they just don't want a negative line item in their portfolio, they tend not to get it. But I think it's what you tend to start to get it at, as you live longer and all of these liquidity events happen and you feel the pain and the and the you're in the fetal position on the floor instead of having a lot of liquidity where like you said you can keep your wits about you and I, you can extend it be even beyond markets right you may be able to continue to make payroll you may be able to buy up your competitors for pennies on the dollar you may be able to buy up real estate for pennies on the dollar you can be much more opportunistic if people look at like the history of of JP Morgan you know he was the one with only liquidity on his books during like five crashes and he talks about that's where he made the most money because he was known for yeah your price my terms because of that liquidity, it wasn't just that he could buy for liquidity, you know, for cheap cash, is he got to dictate terms. And that's the, you know, who he who has the gold makes the rules. And so the, my point being that in a, in a liquidity sell-off, if you have a bunch of liquidity on your books, a dollar has a very different value. You know, pre-risk on cycle, maybe a dollar is not that valuable. Risk off, a dollar is a lot more valuable than a one-to-one uh, value of a dollar. You can do a lot more things with it. That's the way we tend to think about it in general. But then I also just want to take a, a sidestep. You know, you talked about, you know, CDS, CDX trades, you know, what you're seeing in the in the leap option space. But as a vol expert, does that give you an insight into kind of the global macro landscape, whether we're looking at credit rates or whatever? If you see a dislocation to what you're seeing in vol space into other spaces, does that give you an idea where there's more pockets of fragility? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we'll go back to that Plinko analogy. I, th- I think I think it's when folks have limited fundamental conviction around the positions that they hold, but they feel like they must hold them because these two levers are almost forcing that fire hose of liquidity down everybody's throats, it increases fragility because it takes very little for everybody to change their conviction or their positioning when it's not rooted in a fundamental backdrop. And I, I think we're getting to that place where that's showing up in a lot of, of assets. And one of the simplest ways I, I look at it is when bid-ask spreads really start widening in vanilla products. Uh, an example is U.S. Treasuries. Like the illiquidity currently in U.S. Treasuries is is, is quite poor. <laughs> and you'd think we have a backstop of this huge buyer <laughs> willing to sop up everything. And yet, smaller trades in Treasury markets are, are moving things and moving things quite aggressively for what you'd expect for that amount of you know total risk that's being transacted. So we're, we're already starting to see some of that fragility and we'll call it, you know, boring markets, highly liquid boring markets. But I really think that the core reasoning for that is is the amount of conviction people have and the fundamental value of the assets they own is quite limited here 
which means it doesn't take much to turn things on a dime and go from a max liquidity position to massive illiquidity risks spreading around the system. Exactly. And so, Zed, I want to thank you for coming on this special series of the podcast because you have a very unique perspective as you've been creating bespoke overlay hedges for individual clients for such a long history, which is very unique in, in our space. And so with that, I'd like to hand it back to Niels. Thank you so much, Jason and Seth, for a great conversation. I really enjoyed diving into the benefits of a structural negatively correlated strategy and the importance of knowing that you're using a highly liquid strategy to give you the protection that you need to be able to rely on when markets are highly stressed. Something that I worry is not the case with many of the quote-unquote protective investments that investors have been sold. And if you enjoyed it as much as I did, make sure you go and follow Seth's and Jason's work. As you can tell from today's conversation, there are many exciting facets to volatility and we really look forward to exploring many more of them as our series continue. From Jason and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode as our journey into the world of volatility continues. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.